You're listening to the 66 Podcast, the podcast where we go through the books of the Bible one at a time, and today we are in Jeremiah. I'm Andrew Kingsley, and I'm with Drew Kaiser. Um, we're the ministers of the Asheville Road Church Christ in Leeds, Alabama, and today we're doing something a little bit different than we have done before, and I think this bears mentioning just because of the ambient noise that you can hear. Uh, it's the middle of the summer right now as we record this. And as a youth minister, I'm gone to Bible camp over here at Camp Maywood, Hamilton, Alabama. And I'm having a nice afternoon just sitting outside here at a little pavilion, kind of off in the corner, uh, getting to do this today kind of remotely. Uh, it's nice sitting outside, but maybe it'll bother some folks, maybe it won't. But we got some ambient noise, and I'm sure you can hear the birds. <laughs> In the background yeah, I was going to say, it's not just uh, Drew and Andrew today. There is definitely a bird who has converted himself into the into the podcast, so he's going to be joining us. I can't speak the same language as he, so I'm not sure <laughs> you know how to respond to some of his comments. But yeah, we'll put him in the credits. We've been waiting on him to quit doing that, but he won't stop. So we have to just soldier on and do do our best. Yeah, we can put him down in the credits. Uh, but for today, we have, uh, we're moving forward in Jeremiah and, uh, Drew, you've outlined this really well. Uh, we've got a real, it's kind of difficult to make a nice, neat outline of Jeremiah just because of the nature of this book of prophecy similar to Isaiah, uh, to where it's not necessarily in chronological order. Uh, there's a lot of different ways you can put this book together. And, Drew, I think you've done a really good job here. I think you've done a really good job of outlining this book for us. And today you've got our our uh, title is Illustrations for Deaf Ears. Yeah, we're just going to go through the object lessons of Jeremiah. He's famous for that. Uh, he used some really striking images to try to break through. And I think the reason that he did it, is that his audience called for this technique. And, you know, at the end, maybe we can discuss a little bit about preaching and what, how this weighs in on how we should preach and communicate with people. Uh, it's certainly a uh, subject that you and I both are very interested in. But, uh, you know, Jeremiah, he used these object lessons perhaps because the people that he preached to were so hard to, they are so stubborn. And I remember from the last section of scripture that we talked about, there was a verse in chapter 5, verse 21, where he says, Hear this, O foolish and senseless people who have eyes but see not, who have ears but hear not. And, uh, you know, maybe that's the impetus behind the way that he preaches. And in particular, these object lessons, we're going to go through one by one. There are eight of them for our reading and consideration, so I want to jump right in, starting in chapter 13 with the first one. We're just going to go through them one by one and try to get them explained in the first section, and then, of course, we'll have some conversation about about them in the, in the next two parts of the podcast. The first one that we encounter is the ruined loincloth. That's in chapter 13, and it begins in verse 1, where the Lord says to Jeremiah, Go and buy a linen loincloth and put it around your waist and do not dip it in water. So I'm assuming from that that he's talking about wearing this item several days without washing it. I mean, it wouldn't make a whole lot of sense if he said, you know, put this on and, you know, make sure you don't dip it in water because most of us don't, you know, halfway through the day take our clothes off, dip them in water, put it back on again. He's telling them wear it several days in a row without washing it. And so he did it and uh, put it around his waist. And then verse 3 says, The word of the Lord came to him a second time. Take the loincloth that you have bought, which is around your waist, and arise, go to the Euphrates, and hide it there in a cleft of the rock. And so Jeremiah went and hid it in the Euphrates, as the Lord commanded him. And after many days, the Lord said to him, Arise, go to the Euphrates, and um, go to the Euphrates, and take from there the loincloth that I commanded you to hide there. Then I went to the Euphrates and dug, and I took the loincloth from the place where I had hidden it, and behold, the loincloth was spoiled, 
it was good for nothing. Then the word of the Lord came to me, thus says the Lord, Even so will I spoil the pride of Judah and the great pride of Jerusalem, this evil people who refuse to hear my words, who stubbornly follow their own heart, and have gone after other gods to serve them and worship them, shall be like this loincloth, which is good for nothing. For as the loincloth clings to the waist of a man, so I made the whole house of Israel and the whole house of Judah cling to me, declares the Lord, that they might be for me a people, a name, a praise, and a glory. But they would not listen. So again, we come back to that, you know, deaf ear motif that runs throughout the book. You know, they wouldn't listen to it. Maybe that's why Jeremiah is trying to show them a striking image of this ruined loincloth. So that's the first one. But you know, Drew, there was something in there that you mentioned uh, to start with in verse 10 of that ruined loincloth uh, story there in chapter 13. He says, this evil people who refuse to hear my words, who stubbornly follow their own hearts, have gone after other gods to serve them. I think it's interesting how many times in this reading that we have for today, how many times we're going to read about these uh, other idols, these false gods, and then the refusal, just flat out refusal of the people of Israel. It's not like they were ignorant to what they're doing. They just refuse to hear God. I think that's part of the reason that you see these things that are so visual, especially when we get to the yoke and the and the uh, large stones later on. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Let's go to the second one, the potter's clay, and this is in chapter 18. Uh, verse 1 has the Lord saying to Jeremiah, Arise and go down to the potter's house. And there I will let you hear my words. So I went down to the potter's house, and there he was working at his wheel. And the vessel he was making of clay was spoiled in the potter's hand, and he reworked it into another vessel, as it seemed good to the potter to do. Then the word of the Lord came to me, O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter has done, declares the Lord. Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. If at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it, and if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do to it. And so uh, I'll stop right here. There it goes on. You know, you could read all the way to the middle of the chapter, but that gets the image in place. And a very powerful one, and I think this is one that you see repeated a few times, I, I, it certainly comes up in Isaiah and in Paul in Romans chapter 9. So I think for right. our listeners, this is probably a more comfortable uh, object lesson for them because it shows up in our hymns. It's, um, you know, seen in a number of prophecies and other places. Uh, I think it's interesting one, that these okay. first two, I'm sorry to cut you off there, but I think it's interesting that these first two are kind of, you know, it seems like they're almost for Jeremiah you know, more so than the benefit of others. Maybe it's just, seems like maybe Jeremiah is kind of figuring out the word that he has to bring here. Maybe so God's trying to illustrate it to him. And then with some of these uh, later on, like this next one you're about to get into in chapter 19 with the broken flask um, or the broken clay jars, I think, you know, this is something a little more public and now we're moving into some that can be seen by all not just kind of a lesson for Jeremiah and for our benefit as we read. Well, that's a good point, because uh, I think some of these objects are more public than others. And uh, so let's go to the Broken Flask, Chapter 19. Uh, Every one of these begins kind of the same way. Thus says the Lord, or the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. So that's how we begin here. Go buy a potter's earthen flask. And take some of the elders of the people and some of the elders of the priests and go out to the valley of the cemetery, the entry of the potsherd gate, and proclaim there the words that I tell you. You shall say, Hear the word of the Lord, O kings of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel. Behold, I am bringing such disaster upon this place that the ears of everyone who hears of it will tingle because the people have forsaken me and have profaned this place by making offerings in it to other gods whom neither they nor their fathers nor the kings of Judah have known, and because they have filled this place with the blood of innocence and have built the high places of Baal 
to burn their sons in fire as burnt offerings to Baal, which I did not command or decree, nor did it come into my mind. Therefore, therefore, behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when this place shall no more be called Topheth, or the valley of the son of Hinnom, but the valley of slaughter. Now let's get down to verse 10, where it continues. Then you shall break the flask, and this is what you're pointing out, Andrew, publicly, in the sight of the men who go with you, and shall say to them, Thus says the Lord of hosts, So will I break this people and this city as one breaks a potter's vessel, so that it can never be mended. So um, there, there's the third object lesson there. And as, as you pointed out, very public in the way that it's demonstrated. You know, the power of a visual for people to really help you understand it's especially something as dramatic as smashing a pot. You know, it's not like he's just got a, a fishing rod with him and he's talking about how we should be fishers of men and you can just look at the fishing pole while he's talking. He's got a pot that he smashes and it breaks. It's, you know, it's dramatic. It's loud. They might make you cover your ears and he's saying this is exactly what God's going to do to, to our nation if we don't turn. Just some really cool imagery to have in mind as you read through these things. Yeah, and considering what Jeremiah goes through in his ministry, it might have felt pretty good, too, for him. Right. Yeah, right. Um, All right. Well, let's go to chapter 24 and get the fourth object lesson, which is two baskets of figs. And um, just read the first few verses of this chapter to get the image. There's, There's a little setting, historical setting that's given to us here. This is after Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had taken into exile from Jerusalem. Jeconai, Jeconai, Jeconiah, there we go. Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, who I believe we also call Jehoiachin. But uh, Jeconiah, or Kaniah, uh, he's called by several names. Uh, And there were several others taken. This is when the best, the cream of the crop, were taken into captivity. And so you can see these object lessons are not falling in chronological order. They're all over the place in that sense. But during this time, the Lord showed Jeremiah two baskets of figs placed before the temple of the Lord. One basket had very good figs, like first ripe figs, but the other basket had very bad figs, so bad that they could not be eaten. Now, I'm a big fig fan. I love figs. Getting close to the time of the year in Alabama where the figs are ripe. And, and I've learned from going to farmers markets and getting figs from friends who give them to me that, uh, you, you pretty much gotta eat the whole bunch really fast. Because they'll sit out on your countertop maybe one, two days and they go bad really fast. And like Jeremiah says, when they go bad, they go really bad. I mean, this was a carefully chosen image. Figs, of course, were a staple crop in those in those places, but um, when they go bad, there's flies all over them. They rot really fast. They break down, and that's what happened. And so the Lord asked him, "What did you see?" And he said, "Figs, the very the good figs, very good, and the bad figs, very bad. So bad that they cannot be eaten." Uh, so then the word of the Lord came to him, and he said, "Like these good figs." So I will regard as good the exiles from Judah. Those are the ones in captivity that were taken, explained in the first uh, verse there of chapter 24. Whom I have sent away into the land of the Chaldeans or the Babylonians. I will set my eyes on them for good and I will bring them back to this land. I will build them up and not tear them down. I will plant them and not uproot them. I will give them a heart to know that I am the Lord. And they shall be my people and I will be their God for they shall return to me with their whole heart. But thus says the Lord, like the bad figs, they are so bad they cannot be eaten. So I will treat Zedekiah, the king of Judah, his officials, the remnant of Jerusalem, who remain in the land, and those who dwell in the land of Egypt. So the good figs are the ones who are in exile, the bad figs the ones who stay and try to continue governance over Judah in the days that Nebuchadnezzar has pretty much taken over everything. Right, it's almost like those who, and there's a statement I think that we'll get to a little bit later about, you know, submitting to 
the really, I guess, for lack of a better term, I guess is a wrath of Nebuchadnezzar. I don't know if that's the right term to use, but um, within these passages, God talks about you know those who refuse to obey Nebuchadnezzar. God refers to Nebuchadnezzar as his servant, and so it makes sense mm-hmm. here talking about you know the good figs, and it you know it kind of runs counter to what we might think. Well, why are the good figs the ones that are submitting to Nebuchadnezzar? But as it turns out, God himself has said Nebuchadnezzar is serving as his servant to carry out his will. So anyone that's going against Nebuchadnezzar at this point is going against the will of God. And, and God points that out through Jeremiah here in this in this book. Yeah, and you're referring to chapter 27, verse, uh, verse 6, which is where we're going next with the uh, object lesson of the yoke, which is my favorite of the bunch. And uh, in verse 2 of chapter 27, the Lord tells Jeremiah to make him to make himself straps and yoke bars and put them on your neck. And he says, send word to the king of Edom, the king of Moab, the king of the sons of Ammon, the king of Tyre, and the king of Sidon by the hand of the envoys who have come to Jerusalem to Zedekiah, king of Judah. Give them this charge for their masters. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, this is what you shall say to your masters. It is I who by my great power and my outstretched arm have made the earth with the men and animals that are on the earth, and I give it to whomever it seems right to me. Uh, Then look at verse 8. He says, If any nation or kingdom will not serve this Nebuchadnezzar king of Babylon and put its neck under the yoke of the king of Babylon, I will punish that nation with the sword, with famine, with pestilence, declares the Lord, until I have consumed it by his hand. So do not listen to your prophets, and he gives a list of people not to listen to. He says, do do not listen to them, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you. Any nation that will bring its neck under the yoke of the king of Babylon and serve him, I will leave on its own land to work it and dwell there, declares the Lord. So he gives what politically could be given as a pro-Babylonian stance here in the days of Zedekiah and Nebuchadnezzar. Something um, right. a lot of people might be surprised to see. Yeah, yeah. Verse six definitely surprised me, along with verse eight. Those two tied together. Where he, you know, he's really. We know Nebuchadnezzar to be a ruler of a pagan nation, you know. And later on, with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, looks like Nebuchadnezzar has some form of belief in God. Now, whether that's a monotheistic belief like the Jews would have had or not. Nebuchadnezzar kind of comes around, but still, the way that God talks about him in this passage is, you know, it's just striking. It's very interesting how he refers to him, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant. I have given him also the beast of the field to serve him. All the nations shall serve him, and his sons and his grandson, until the time of his own land comes. So it's interesting how... You know, he's almost commanding, well, he is commanding the people, really, to to submit to Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon. Yeah, we definitely have to revisit that um, if we don't run out of time uh, during the think section uh, in the next part of the podcast, because it's the most, uh, probably the most perplexing statement in our readings for today. Uh, let's right. go over to chapter 32 and get the next object lesson, the purchase field. Uh, this is where Jeremiah is told to uh, buy a field in Anathoth, which is where he was raised and where a lot of priests evidently dwell. And uh, he said in verse 7, the right of redemption by purchase is yours. So he buys the field at Anathoth from his cousin and he, you know, pays for it. He signs the deed, he seals it, he got the witnesses, he went through all the the legalities of buying property in those days, and he gave the deed of purchase to Beirut, this is his scribe, in the presence of Hanamel, his cousin, and in the presence of the witnesses who signed the deed, in the presence of the Judeans, so this is another very public object lesson like you were talking about, and we're sitting in the court of the guard, and he charged Beirut in the presence saying this, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, take these deeds, both this sealed deed of purchase and this open deed, 
and put them in an earthenware vessel, that they may last for a long time. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, houses and fields and vineyards shall again be bought in this land. So this is where you put your money where your mouth is. And Jeremiah is in this, and this is kind of an unusual example. It's not a doom and gloom object lesson, but one of hope. And it is that, you know, after the 70-year captivity, uh, the Jews will be allowed to return to their homeland and do what he says there in verse 15, build houses and fields and vineyards and, and buy land and, and go back to living again. So, you know, a message of hope through all these others. Right. And I think uh, verses 42 to the end of the chapter really sum it up. Well, it's not doesn't sum it up as concisely as what you read a moment ago. But I guess it really uh, expands the thought out greater, talking about verse 42 says, Thus says the Lord, just as I have brought all this great disaster upon the people, so I will bring upon them all the good that I promised them. Fields shall be bought in this land of which you are saying it is desolation. It is given into the hand of the Chaldeans. Fields shall be bought, deeds shall be signed and sealed and witnessed in the land of Benjamin and the places around Jerusalem in the cities of Judah, in the cities of the hill country, in the cities of the Negev, for I will restore their fortunes, declares the Lord. So kind of yeah. a more, a more uh, full, complete picture there of of the kind of redemption that's, that's still coming, as long as the people will repent. Yeah, yeah. So let's get these last two really quickly. Uh, chapter 43 we have an object lesson involving some large stones that uh, the Lord tells Jeremiah to take to Tapanis. Tapanis was in Egypt, so this is very late in the narrative of Jeremiah. After Jerusalem has been destroyed and uh, the, the uh, people are fleeing to Egypt and Jeremiah is taken there against his will. And so the Lord told him when he's being kidnapped and taken to Tapanis to take large stones and hide them in the mortar and the pavement that's in the entrance to Pharaoh's palace in the sight of the men of Judah and say to them, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I will send and take Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant. And there it is again, the second time he's called his servant. And I will set his throne above these stones that I have hidden and spread his royal canopy over them. In other words, uh, Egypt is not a good place to flee to for asylum. Because eventually, Nebuchadnezzar is going to make his way down there, and he's going to destroy, he won't destroy Egypt, but it will not be the place where the Jews want to be. You know, I think um, Egypt survives, and it's not destroyed in the same sense that Jerusalem is destroyed. But it certainly, you know, is no place of asylum. Um, right. Let me, let me get this last one real quick. For the second time, this is the sunken scroll near the end of chapter 51. And, I think this uh, one might be my favorite one. Okay. Uh, this one it, is really neat. Now, uh, this is a command, this is uh, Jeremiah's command to Sariah. Uh, Sariah, I believe, is Beirut's brother. I'm not 100% sure on that. But uh, Jeremiah tells this to Sariah because Sariah is going away with Zedekiah to Babylon. He's being taken into the captivity. Uh, he was the quartermaster. That was his uh, position. So Jeremiah writes the book, in a book, all the disasters that should come upon Babylon. So for once, you know, this servant of God, Nebuchadnezzar, this part of the uh, solution to the problem that we introduced a moment ago that we'll finally discuss in the next part of the episode, but uh, this is about disasters that comes upon Babylon. And uh, he wrote this down in the book, and he told Sariah, when you come to Babylon, see that you read all these words and say, O Lord, you have said concerning this place that you will cut it off, so that nothing shall dwell in it, neither man nor beast, and it shall be desolate forever. And when you finish reading the book, tie a stone to it, cast it into the midst of the Euphrates, and say, Thus shall Babylon sink to rise no more because of the disaster that I'm bringing upon her, and they shall become exhausted. So, you know, that was a big thing to do for Jeremiah and Sariah. 
for Soraya, he had to read this publicly in a place where it'd be very dangerous for him to do so. But, you know, this was before Google Drive and, um, you know, backups and all that. And uh, Jeremiah put a lot of work into this thing, only to have it tossed into the bottom of the Euphrates River. Right. Um, so it is it's a very interesting object lesson, to be sure. Right. And so I guess our next step here is to come back. We'll take a quick break, and we'll come back, and we'll dig a little bit deeper into some of these object lessons from Jeremiah. We're back. Uh, let's look at these, and, uh, you know, we may have something to say about each one of them. We may not. I'm just going to go through these one by one. I have a few thoughts on them. You have a few thoughts on them. And we'll pause where we feel that discussion is required. And so we're going to basically, I hope we don't lose our listeners with my saying this, but we're basically going to wind up going through these eight object lessons three times. But I assure you that unless we have something interesting to say about each one of them, we're we're not going to say anything. Now, uh, right. the first one, the first one is the ruined loincloth from chapter thirteen, and I do have uh, some discussion on this one because I have always, since I was a kid, wondered what is this garment, and I've tried to avoid saying this, but it kind of seems like an illustration of dirty underwear. You know, that's just kind of what it right. sounds yeah. like. And some translations, I forget which ones, have girdle, you know, which is, yeah. I guess that's King James, uh, girdle. And I've heard preachers compare this. I heard a sermon on this one time, and I heard, and then the preacher was comparing this to underwear. So what is this? Um, you may have noticed some other translations. We have been reading from the ESV, of course, and the uh, other translation I thought might have been helpful is the New American Standard Bible, which has linen waistband. Right. And uh, I think linen is also in the ESV. Uh, and I know you it said is. in the break there's a few things that uh, were interesting to you about that. But first, I want to go over what this is. There's a couple of interpretations. And one, the most obvious interpretation is that we're talking about an undergarment, a loincloth perhaps that goes down to maybe halfway down to the knee, wraps around, and um, you would wear that under your clothing. The other interpretation is that this could have been a belt-like thing that you wear on the outside of your clothing, which the New American Standard Bible may have been hinting at that, one of the arguments in right. favor of that position is verse 9, where the waistband, the waistband is illustrating the pride of Judah. Uh, I right. want the pride of Judah and the great pride of Jerusalem. Well, you know, pride and an undergarment don't seem to go hand in hand. One is hidden and one is showy and out in the open. I don't know if that settles the question. I still kind of lean towards this being an undergarment for reasons that I'll get into in a moment. But, you know, I, I don't know. Are there any other options than that? Um, what, what Not that mean? I know of. I know that, I mean, I know what you mentioned. The uh, New American Standard has waistband, and then what we're reading here uh, has loincloth, and then the NIV and uh, the New Century Version as well render it as belt. But that's all the options that I've come across for it. Yeah, so I wasn't aware that some translations just actually go with the belt. Um, I don't think it changes the point, but, you know, people are wondering, they're trying, you know, people are trying to uh, 
visualize this in their minds. What is this? And you know, it's it's kind of hard to do when you're not sure what type of clothing this is. Um, yeah. Another really interesting thing that I that I took away from this is verse 11, and I had a feeling that there was a connection to something else in that, and and I was able to confirm that, but. You know, the Lord says, as the loincloth clings to the waist of a man, so I made the whole house of Israel and the whole house of Judah cling to me. And I had a feeling that that word cling would wind up being the same word translated hold fast in Genesis chapter 2 verse 24, where marriage is being defined as a man leaving his father and mother and holding fast to his wife. And sure enough, it is the same word. Oh, it really gives you an idea of relationship here. And I think that is right. definitely meant, um, you know, that there is a, a a relationship expected of total commitment and oneness, just like you would expect between a husband and a wife. And that's what the Lord wanted with, you know, we talked last episode about Israel as an unfaithful bride. Well, this is what he wanted in in Israel is a relationship with that kind of intimacy and commitment, but it's been soiled, been ruined. That clinging, right? Yeah, and I think that's I think that's definitely the most important idea here. You know, whether or not this cloth was an undergarment or a belt, you know, we could discuss and debate for a long time. But I don't really know, you know, give us any more insight into what, you know, you just mentioned about this is really about the relationship between the people that was supposed to be sacred, supposed to be holy. And let me ask you, what do you think about the fact that it's linen? Because I'm sitting here with uh, Dayton Keith's commentary in front of me in this Truth For Today series, and uh, he brings out the fact that uh, the linen could possibly, or probably rather, indicate that it's special. Uh, the, Le- the Levitical priests, actually dressed in linen, and Keith suggests that perhaps the linen waistband suggests the unique nature of the relationship between God and Israel, as you mentioned. And certainly something being worn by a priest would give it kind of that holy connotation. So I think it's... Hang on, buddy. Okay, I paused so I could mute that uh, so we can start it back here in the recording. I think the fact that it's a linen waistband kind of goes to show the holy nature that the people of Israel were supposed to have. You know, if this fits as a priestly garment, and whether it does or not, the fact still stands that the people of Israel should have had a relationship towards God that was unstained, unblemished, similar to the relationship between God and Abraham. God and Job, these are people that are called blameless, is why I bring them up. Scripture uses that word. You know, they're not perfect, but according to the law, they are blameless. And I really think the imagery here is, I guess it really speaks to me about how, you know, just like you were supposed to be holy and clean and clinging to me, now, and there's the added imagery here of he takes it off and leaves it somewhere for a while. And, and what is pray- God? Yeah, and what is God you know, going to do with His people? He's going to. Isn't that uh, a long way away from Judea? I was just getting back to the logistics of what Jeremiah had to do. That's quite a journey. Right, he would have been going off by himself. Oh yeah. Yeah, you know, he would. I heard about an object lesson one time where a guy took a potato, and he he took like. <laughs> several different potatoes and talked about different taters in the church and you had commentators uh-huh. and uh, sweet uh-huh. taters and all kind of, you know, real cheesy and, uh, you know, all he had to do was go buy a five-pound bag of potatoes and he was ready to go. Jeremiah had to wear this thing, you know, for several days and then and then the Lord said, now I want you to take a trip. I want you to go into enemy territory hundreds of miles away and bury this thing in the Euphrates River. And then I want you to dig it back up again. I mean, that's like commitment to a sermon if I ever heard it. Right. Yeah, I guess so. We don't travel uh, 
all these miles just to get the object lesson ready for the sermon. You know, no way. I guess, no way. I guess in our terms, it'd be like having to drive over to, I don't know, uh, maybe like down to Mobile from Birmingham to pick something up to come back up to use it as an object lesson. I guess. I don't know. I don't know. Um, I think this is a several day journey. I, okay. I don't think you can just make it over to the Euphrates River in five or six hours. Yeah, I know it was in the territory of what would have been current Babylon, correct? The Euphrates yeah. would have been over in that territory. Okay, yeah, so it was a really good ways off. I'm thinking about having a vehicle to ride in, so I need to change my yeah. thinking. These people didn't have cars. And, yeah. Yeah. Well, let's let's move on. Do you have anything on the potter's clay? I mean, that one for me was so straightforward that it didn't require a whole lot of thought to me. Uh, there's definitely some applications there. What about you? Right. All my all my notes I have for that one are definitely on apply. Yeah. So I guess we what can move on to the, the broken clay jars. Yeah, because I got I got some stuff on this, as I'm sure you are. Not so much about the object lesson, but about this this location that keeps coming up that is such a concern for the Lord, Topheth in the Valley of the Sons of Hinnom. Uh, now, this isn't the only place in Jeremiah where this is mentioned, but the point of this broken flask is that God is, you know, the people have forsaken him, and they have forsaken him in this, form of human sacrifices. And that is why God is going to break the people in the city as one breaks a potter's vessel. Because of their idolatry, but more specifically, their human sacrifice. Now one thing that, I don't know if this appears anywhere else in the Old Testament, I'm showing my ignorance here, but I found it interesting that the God mentioned was Baal. I expected Molech or maybe Chemosh one of the right. Canaanite gods that I know is the fire god. But here yeah, me Baal. too. Not that Baal was a good guy, but um, I'm not used to human sacrifice being in connection with Baal. I, have you ever seen that before? I haven't either, and you know, I actually have that written here as a question I was going to ask you about sacrifice to Baal question mark. <laughs> so, yeah, I... I uh, yeah, I've... I've never seen that before either. I'm, I'm very familiar with the uh, sacrifices they would make to gods like uh, Chemosh, who you mentioned. And in fact, Second Kings 23, uh, verse 10, talks about this place, Topheth, and says children were passed through the fire there. And yeah. to me, yeah. that, I mean, that sounds like the same type of sacrifice. Maybe people started uh, fusing or putting together, you know, the worship of these two false gods. They take these idols and they're really uh kind of you know they're not images you'd want to show to a small child uh some of the depictions they have of these statues that they used to have but as i understand it uh drew and the things i've studied i've seen these uh recreations of these uh bronze i guess or iron statues that were hollow on the inside and it would have a you know, I guess a block about four feet tall on the bottom. And then uh, on top of this block would be uh, of a rectangular shape. On top of that rectangular block would be this image of like this bull. And I believe this is Kimosh here. Uh, it's a bull, you know, with arms like a man. And he's standing um, upright with his hands held outward together. You know, almost like he's... uh trying to hand something over to somebody uh, in his hands or kind of up close to his stomach, just to give you an idea. You can search this in Google Images, and you'll probably get the exact image I'm talking about. Uh, yeah, but what I've they do... Seen, yeah, I've seen them. Yeah, and they would take a... They would fill this thing with wood, and they would light it on fire, and metal, obviously being a conductor of heat, will get really, really warm, really hot. Uh, to the point of if you put something on the hands of that statue, it would burn it up or melt it, uh, according to whatever nature the material was that you placed on the statue's hands. And that is where they would place their children. They'd place them in the hands of the statue 
to allow them to be burnt, uh, as Second Kings 23.10 says, pass through the fire, that's the practice that we read here. So when we talk about this place, Topheth, being, it's going to be destroyed and known as the Valley of Slaughter, there's a good reason to make this place a complete desolation because of the horrible things that are going on here. I mean, can you imagine putting a, an infant, a small child, on the, you know, basically in an oven is, is what they're doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's horrific. And, you know, God condemns it, and, you know, absolutely. The etymology of the word topeth is uh, kind of interesting and, and debated. I mean, I don't think anybody has an agreement on where exactly that name com- comes from. Two main theories are that it originally had to do with a place that you spit upon, which uh, would make it a despicable place. I don't know if that's a name that, you know, was used by the people who frequented it or if it was a a prophetic name for it, because I can't imagine you going to worship at the place to spit upon. But then also uh, some say, no, it's just a general name for burning. It it originally meant fireplace because of all the flames that were constantly billowing up there, which that is believable as well. I think it's also interesting that it was located in the Valley of the Sons of Hinnom. Hebrew is Gehinnom, which is Gehinnom, which uh, is the word for hell that Jesus used. Uh, There are some other words that have been translated hell, but the main word in the New Testament for hell is Gehenna. Now, uh, Josiah, this, this had to have been an early demonstration because Second Kings 23, you mentioned this verse before, but you didn't uh, mention this. Second Kings 23 tells us that Josiah defiled Topheth, which is in the valley of the sons of Hinnom, that no one might burn his sons or his daughter as an offering to Molech. And the, the, the word defiled there suggests oh, wow. that what he did was that he, he did whatever um, was considered an abomination to that particular god. It was hard to believe, but there were ritualistic things that could um, make an abomination out of this place. And he followed through with those, such as, you know, if the dead bodies on the ground or whatever it needed. He he did that to Topheth so that the prophets of Baal or the prophets of Molech would never offer sacrifices there again. And right. so he turned that into a place that couldn't be used for anything but a dump. And uh, they would often cremate bodies in there, uh, throw dead animal carcasses in there. It was just south of Jerusalem, and Topheth was on the southeastern end of the valley, and uh, that was this uh, awful-smelling place where the worm never dies with unquenchable fire, and it was Jesus' analogy to hell. He would use it all the time, as as our listeners know. And so uh, I just think that's interesting to get all of this background with respect to the New Testament and know that that, you know, eventually became Gehenna, which was the trash dump of Jerusalem. Worse than that, it was a place where they threw the bodies of the condemned and, you know, dead animals and all that stuff. Just an awful place. Right, and when you have that image in your mind, it's no wonder the prophecy that goes along with what uh, Jeremiah talks about there. You know, he says, because you're doing this, you're going to be, you're going to become as this pot that I just threw down and smashed. So are we through here with this one? Yeah, I think we should move on to the uh, the object of the figs, the good figs and the bad figs in chapter 24. Did you have anything, any notes on that one? Not really. Um, it was pretty straightforward. I didn't really, you know, I yeah. said, I've said it already that it, you know, really is true, true to life because figs will do that. They'll spoil rapidly. Right. And really the only thing I thought worth mentioning um, from this standpoint was the history behind it. But if you don't understand the history, then... You know, it really doesn't make any sense because, you know, the whole prophecy here is about the ones who have gone away into the captivity 
and the ones who are trying to stay put. So the other thing I was going to mention was Nebuchadnezzar had already taken the people into exile, but that's really part of the reading. So I guess we can move to the one that you mentioned was your favorite out of these eight, and that's in chapter 27, the yoke. Yeah, for me, this one is the one that I can really picture in my head. Uh, in case you're not aware of it, a yoke is an instrument that is used to tie uh, beasts of burden together, like oxen, so that they can, you know, it kind of harnesses them so that they are able to pull a plow or a cart or do something, you know, uh, to help a farmer or a laborer. And uh, so it's the idea of being, you know, a slave or a servant. Uh, you're definitely not in a position of power. And uh, this is an ox's yoke, not something that would be very small and manageable. And I can just see Jeremiah walking around the town with this yoke on on his shoulders, this oversized wooden yoke, and, uh, you know, wailing about how this is what we need to be. You know, it, it's it's... It's one of those examples of the Lord asking us to do something that is counterintuitive. You would think, no, being a slave to somebody is not, especially a pagan nation, that's, that's, that can't be the right thing. And he's saying, you know, this is what, this is where your salvation lies, in being a servant to Nebuchadnezzar, the servant of the Lord. And, um, you know, I guess the other thing I was going to say is, Verse 3 mentions a number of nations, Ammon, Moab, uh, Edom. And I think what's going on here is that Zedekiah, this is the final king of Judah, the, the guy who's eventually taken into captivity at the very end, uh, Zedekiah is trying to put a coalition together with a bunch of little small kingdoms all around the Judean area and uh, maybe form an alliance that would side with Egypt over Babylon. And so, you know, Jeremiah's message is for them. Their their envoys are in town for this meeting. So you think about like as this this big summit that you know political summit that's meeting together for for this. And here comes this crazy prophet with a yoke, telling people to submit to Babylon and not make an alliance and not uh, side with Egypt. It's just really fascinating to me. Right, and uh, and you hit the nail on the head with what I have from. From this one is just the the imagery of him walking around, and I like the word you use, wailing about. You know, this is what we should be. This is our punishment. That's just a a, a very vivid, uh, easy to imagine in your mind. Somebody walking around with you know this huge yoke on them, and and really, uh, you know, when he's called the weeping prophet, just wailing about what has happened. Uh, so I guess we can move now to, we're really running out of time really quickly, uh, so we can move to chapter 32 with the purchase field. Um, I didn't have any notes on this one other than the fact that uh, we're talking about this place, Anathoth. It's mentioned actually in the introduction to Jeremiah as the place where Jeremiah is from. So it makes sense that he has the right to this field um, that we read earlier in verse 7 of chapter 32 where his uh, cousin says, hey, buy my field for the ride is yours. So it makes sense yeah. because it's in the place where he's from. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's, I don't have anything on that. Okay. Should we move over to the the stones uh, in Egypt in 43? Yeah, you know, and, and at this point in the podcast, our listeners might be surprised to find a remainder of the Jews in Egypt. That's not where they were supposed to be. And uh, that's kind of the point of the image. But, you know, beyond that, I, I really don't have anything on that. Right. I don't either. Uh, I'd like to save some of the historical application here for when we get through the narrative of Jeremiah being taken over to Egypt towards the end of his life. Yeah, we, we've got, yeah, we've got an, a whole episode we're going to do on Egypt near the end of this story. But, you know, it does help to know this is at the very, very end of Jeremiah's life. This is really where we lose track of him. And uh, after Egypt, we don't know if he was taken back to Babylon. That's what some people think. 
or he could have been stoned. There is a legend that says he was stoned in Egypt, maybe for doing this this thing here in uh, our lesson today. What about the scroll thrown down into the river? You know, I don't know that I have anything for uh, deep thinking on this one. Um, yeah, it's so clear. You know, the meaning is just right there in front of you. Yeah, I just think it's really. I don't. I don't know why this one seems to uh, be, I guess, more clear and more to the point to me um, than some of the others. But I don't know. For some reason, this one just seems to be, for lack of a better term, and this is uh, not exactly the most scholarly thing to say. I just think it's the coolest one, really. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, I like it because uh, Beirut's brother is involved. Uh, I like it because of the danger of him going to Babylon and saying these things. I like, you know, the imagery of the sunken scroll. And uh, and also that all this time it feels good to finally hear that Babylon's going to be judged. Because right. we've been feeling a little uneasy through this whole, and I guess this is where we need to mention that, that statement from uh, chapter 27 that, uh, you know, Nebuchadnezzar's my servant. We saw it twice, actually. Uh, you know, he's not God's servant in the sense that he is a godly man. Uh, he's not God's servant in the sense that he is a part of God's uh, plan of salvation for humanity or his special people. He's his servant in that he is God's instrument of wrath and will bring the punishment upon his people they deserve. But then he doesn't right. escape punishment himself. So, right. Um, right. Unless he would turn and repent, much like the people of Israel, uh, he's going to face the same kind of punishment for really the same kind of sin. Yeah, right. So I think well, that's you, the next point. What do, you, what do you say we take a break right here and come back and try to finish this up with some practical applications in the third part? Sounds good. You know, the practical application for me as a preacher that comes up when we look at all of these object lessons is object lessons themselves. And, uh, you know, I study preaching all the time. I try to better myself. I don't know how successful I am at, at getting better, but I'm trying to grow and get better as a preacher. And I, I listen to other people's sermons and see how they do things. I'm very interested in it. But, you know, Andrew, one thing that, that I've never really felt compelled to do is an object lesson. I think some people really love them, and, and some people, it's, it's one of those things that is hard to pull off and be successful at it. And, uh, you know, there's several examples that come to mind. I remember the one guy, and I may have already said this, but there was one guy who was preaching on Exodus 3 where Moses was told to take his sandals off where he was on holy ground, and he slipped his shoes off while he was preaching. And uh, then there's the Tager guy. And, you know, I'm, a lot of my friends think that's the best sermon they've ever heard is that Tater sermon. And I've heard that sermon has been copied by others before. I've, I've heard it more than once. Uh, so a lot of people like the Tater stuff. Uh, uh, one famous preacher, uh, he uses big postcards, and it's kind of like ancient PowerPoint. He just would write the points on the on the big, not postcards, uh, poster boards. Ancient PowerPoint? yeah. I like that. It's in the age of PowerPoint that he does this, but he likes to hold up the, the poster board as opposed to flipping a PowerPoint slide. And and then I told you about the guy that was talking about social media and the problems with people being addicted to electronics. And, you know, he was saying, he, had, he said, I, I have in my hands here an iPad and a cell phone, and together they're worth about $1,200, and I just can't take it anymore. And he turned and he threw both devices 
into the baptistry. You know, that was a pretty striking uh, message right there because if you get your cell phone wet, it's done for, and he just threw that stuff away. Right. I, I, I never done anything again. like that. You know, I, I just, um, I don't know how effective it would be today in a worship assembly setting where I'm delivering a sermon. And maybe I'm, maybe I need correcting on that. You know, as I look at Jeremiah, it was definitely a major part of his his uh, homiletic approach. Right, and I think, you know, it just depends. I don't think you're any better or worse off using an object lesson. You know, I just think, I do think uh, maybe for parents with small children especially, it might be easier for their children to be able to pay attention and to listen. Um, I know when we do our kids' devotionals, uh, if I can come up with something that's not just ridiculously cheesy, I like to have some kind of object, you know, whether it's something I'm holding in my hands or whether it's just a devotional that has to do with what we just did uh, or what we're about to do. For example, we went to the zoo last month. After we looked around at the zoo, we had a devotional about uh, God's power and just how awesome creation is and, you know, how the animals are... Some of the animals have really, uh, you know, special abilities and neat things about them. We talked about how powerful and awesome God was based on that. I think for children especially, it's, you know, it makes it a little easier for them to learn to remember more so than anything, really, uh, something that will stick with them. You know, if they can have that extra thing to keep them involved. For adults, you know, I think it's a little less uh, critical. But done in the right way, it can make it stick. And if it's the person, you know, the right person there, like you mentioned, some of your friends still love that Tater sermon, which sounds awesome. Um, <laughs> I need to get a copy of that. Uh, but I do think definitely there's a good a good place for object lessons. We have one, as a matter of fact, Sunday night, Kyle Butt up here uh, spoke about complaining, and he used the people of Israel uh, when they were in the desert uh, being fed with manna and how they would complain and he had a Twix bar with him and he was talking about how manna would have been something sweet uh, kind of like Twix. He said it more accurately would have been kind of like a a uh, more like a donut type thing uh, which is really interesting. Uh, I haven't done any research on any of that before but since Kyle Butt's saying I'm guessing he's probably done his research I would guess. Um and then, uh, he, and then he referred, you know, they were complaining and saying, back when we were in Egypt, we had all this food, and one of the things they mentioned was an onion. And so he pulls an onion out of the bag. And so you have the really stark contrast, and I know for all the little kids sitting on the front row that they're going to remember that, you know, or if they were still awake or able to pay attention at that point. Uh, you know, just seeing him stand there, the people were complaining about this, a Twix bar, wanting this, an onion. You know, a really stark contrast, visible right there. If you're on the front row, you can smell it. Um, you know, things like that. I do think will make I it think less it's more. That's very effective, and, and I've done a lot of chapel for elementary school kids and used lots of object lessons in those situations. But, um, you know, um, to adults, I don't do it. And it's... I guess you consider the audience, and that's exactly what Jeremiah was doing. He was considering his audience, and as I let off right. Jeremiah 5.21, I'll, I'll bring this back there again. There were a people, a senseless people, meaning unfeeling. You know, you could not break through to them. This is a preacher with a very tough audience. And they, they, they had eyes that didn't see and ears that didn't hear. So what do you do? Right. His, his images are not, you know cheesy in the least. I mean, in one of them, no. he puts forth a great deal of money. He invests a lot of money to buy property in order to make this point. I mean, if, if a guy's buying property and making a real estate investment, he's saying, I know this land is going to be worth something in the future. So he's doing this, you know, in preparation for captivity as a way of saying, look, you know, we're going to be restored to our land. So I guess right. when it comes to any kind of speaking, communication, object lesson, no object lesson, always consider your uh, your audience. That's that's the lesson here from these. Right. And I want to I squeeze this in here real, real quick before we get done. I think, you know, with Jeremiah, this object is not some gimmick just to get people to pay attention. 
you know, it's not like, how can I make people remember what I said? And, yeah. You know, let me throw this little gimmick in here, like a good illustration. I think for Jeremiah, it was it was a very, honestly, you people won't listen. You you can't understand by my words. Let me show you. Here's Here's what I mean. Look at this. And it reminds me of the parables that Jesus is going to give, you know, much later on in the Gospels. But... It's just, you know, I'm thinking of this people that's called faithless, that they are called dumb, they're called stupid. Those are the exact words that are used. Any little kids are listening, and those aren't the words you're supposed to say. I'm sorry. Um, but that's what that's what they're called. Uh, that's Bible. Um, you know, it, it really reminds me of teaching young children, well, they might not understand this if I say this, so I'm just going to show them, and then they can relate it. And I think that's what Jeremiah was dealing with with those people, and I think we're just about out of time. Do you have anything else to add, Drew, to the object lessons? I don't. I don't. I, you know, thankful to everybody for listening, and hopefully you will stay with us throughout the book of Jeremiah. I promise you we are going to survey this book so that you will have a better grasp of it at the end of the podcast than you had when you first started listening. Uh, Any feedback that you want to send us, please send that in. We'd love to hear from you, and if you could be so kind as to leave us a review or even just a rating on iTunes, that is very helpful in getting the word out and uh, letting others know that this podcast is out there. And we're competing, you know, with thousands of other podcasts now, so it's hard for people to find us. But uh, right, and this should be us. the only one that we record uh, from different locations like this. So the sound quality should not be like this again. Yeah, we hope not. We may find a better way to do this also, but uh, we're really grateful that you joined us, and we're looking forward to covering more of Jeremiah, so join us next week.